0: Welcome to How Not to DM. I'm your host, Derek. Thanks for joining me on my quest to interview the very best dungeon masters on this plane of existence. This episode's guest is the incredibly talented game designer Cam Banks, creative director at Fandom Tabletop. Cam has created over 25 TTRPG games and supplements across a handful of platforms, including Dragonlance, Marvel Heroic Roleplaying, Serenity RPG, and the Cortex system. Most recently, he's authored Cortex Prime, an incredibly flexible TTRPG system for any game setting. Needless to say, his advice on running and creating games is pure gold. He also has a fantastic beard I can only hope to replicate someday. Enjoy!
1: Well, my name's Ken Banks. Uh, I have been a professional game designer, developer, and producer since uh the very early 2000s got my start in gaming when i was about 11 years old back in 1982 so they can tell you just how far back my hobby goes when third edition dnd came out i had been working on some fan conversion stuff for converting dragon lads books to third edition dnd and a lot of folks were online doing that kind of thing at the time it was the new hotness obviously But my work got noticed by some folks who had been given the official fan license, I guess, or fan agreement with Wizards of the Coast to do Dragonlance stuff in fan groups. So we did a whole lot of stuff. We were converting things. We were putting together kind of a fan book and whatever. Margaret Weiss then noticed us and said, actually, we have a license to make a source book, uh, which Wizards is going to publish. We're going to write, and after we publish it, we're going to do a whole bunch of supplements, and we'd love to have you help us out. So the first part of it was kind of like volunteer, intern stuff. We were just working on things, but then I actually got paid for it, which is nice. Uh, started writing some books, tons of Dragonlance books and supplements. So I was editing them for a while, being a developer, uh, designing almost everything that was going through them, and that was the start of it. Really, it was quite cool. Uh, I, I quit my job as a library supervisor at Penn state uh, i'd been living in uh, in america since 96 and my wife was going to penn state so i had this job at a library and so i thought well this is boring uh, but it was good because uh, in, in between during things you could sort of read books you sit around do nothing for most of the day and so that was a great time to catch up on all the information i needed to do so when i go, go home at night i could write and dump all that stuff in, out of my brain into a a document, um, yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's kind of like it's the uh, accidental discovery. I mean, starting off with a fan group of people just doing homebrew conversions, trying to do what you can to make a you know some very beloved characters come to life in a new system. And uh, there was a lot of that in third edition. There's tons and tons of that. People doing it for all kinds of stuff. But I think for me, Dragonlance was my my number one favorite D D setting. I always loved it and uh, continue to. I don't think there's much likelihood of me working on it in the future, really, because you know this sort of thing tends to filter down to younger generations as the as time goes on. Yeah, but I'm quite happy where I am now. I, uh, over the time since then, uh, working at Margaret's company, I uh, co-designed a whole bunch of stuff for Cortex, and then was lead designer and content as well. So I was, you know, headed up the uh, the uh, Smallville and Leverage and Marvel Heroic and, and then began working on Firefly. But then after that point, I departed the company, decided to get a job with Atlas Games. And I was with them for about five or six years until we moved to back to New Zealand, which is where I'm from originally, hence the funny accent.
0: And that's where you are now, yeah. Speaking of Dragonlance, uh, Tracy Hickman actually just lives... Thirty minutes from me, I think. Uh, I'm I'm in, based in Utah as well, so oh, maybe, really? I yeah. should, uh, maybe I should maybe I should have him on sometime if I can find him. Tell us about the first TTRPG game you ever ran. What was it like? What, what kind of setting was it? How did it go? Generally speaking,
1: this was back in, like I said earlier, in the in the early 80s. Uh-huh. We were some of us were, I mean, it was about three or four friends, and. One of our friends came from America, he brought all his books. We'd kind of been dabbling in in endless quest books and fighting fantasy books and so on, but he had all the the AD&D books and things, and that was pretty cool. But we didn't get to do any GMing, uh, at least I didn't, for probably about a year and a half or so. I was just a player. So my first experience with that, it was a basic set D&D. Just like a, a dungeon map that I'd made myself and put monsters into and so on. It wasn't really that great. At that time, we had started picking up other things that had come out. So Star Frontiers and Gamma World and and all of that. And uh, I felt that it might have been a good occasion for me to, to take one of those games and run that instead since everybody else was doing d and uh, mm-hmm. Didn't turn out that well. No one wanted to, <laughs> wanted to play them. So that was the beginning of my huge collection of of RPGs which uh, has clearly changed and evolved over the years but uh, no it's been um that was kind of like the when the addiction started
0: What are some of the the biggest mistakes you have made as you have run different games and it could be any game you know as a as a dungeon master or a game master and what did you learn from those mistakes that is something you could pass on to the listeners
1: Biggest mistake uh I mean we've all made tons of mistakes running games. Yeah. I think the biggest mistake a game master can make and I think and I've started calling them a game moderator now because I think that that's a little more in line with my thinking. Mm. The biggest mistake GMs can do is think that it's that the players are, are are really should feel special about being a privilege to be part of their their world, you know. Uh, you should you should sort of thank me for running this game because it's gonna be so great and you, you know, you'll be part of this awesome story that I've written out for you and you can just play your roles. I've backed away from this idea that the GM is some omnipotent, you know, deity who oversees everything and has become more of a facilitator for fun things and reacting to players and what they want to do. You know, throw things in front of them and it's in let them decide what they want to do with it, and then sort of just play out the consequences. Is my motto now. But early on, no, definitely you have this idea that oh, I've got a cool story, and the ending is like going to be great, and you're all going to love it. And they don't do that. They don't get there. They change their mind. They they do things you don't expect. There's a million GM advice uh, columns that have been written about don't planning. You Neither know, don't plan the end. Don't don't sort of. Uh, put them in railroad situations like this, but I, I got to tell you that it's not until you realize that all your work and prep for something that they were never going to go to anyway has to be thrown out the window that you realize that's that's the mistake. You know,
0: <laughs> yep stop,
1: stop thinking along those lines. Yeah, yeah. Uh, your world isn't that precious.
0: That's a good soundbite. Your world isn't that precious. So what are some of your favorite encounters you've built or designed in your game they could be combat they could be role play they could be exploration and what made them so great or engaging for the people you were playing with
1: i'm a big fan of social encounters or social situations that are set up so that there are numerous threads you can pull on if you happen to 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 tug on them right Uh, if you find them i like Tough choices. I like I like it where there's there's not really a good answer to, to come out of something that you must make a choice between one thing, it's the rock and the hard place social situation, right? I like setting those up. I think though the the problem sometimes can be is that you try to make them like mysteries. Uh, you know, let's solve this problem with this one person and find out what the clues are. That never really goes anywhere. And also if you end up making the whole thing just talking about stuff and having NPCs talk to each other and the players don't get much involvement, that doesn't work out. So my my favorite situations I've put together have been ones where the players are all I don't know, brothers and sisters or they're all part of a larger family or part of a court or something and something terrible happens and then it's just basically them having to deal with what the fallout is. And that to me is a whole lot of fun. I like to see what they do with it. So as far as encounters go I like to Something into them, something surprising, something tragic, or something you know really funny, and just seeing where they can take it and what they do with it once they've made their decision about how it's going to turn out.
0: You've built and and had your hand in dozens of of different RPGs. You've built supplements. You've built whole games from scratch. You've written books. You you kind of alluded to it earlier, but how do you feel like over time your idea of games in general, and how they should be run have changed throughout your experiences.
1: Yeah, I think, like I was saying, I think the role of the GM in my mind has changed, uh, at least my preferences have. I probably always had this as an idea because I I don't honestly like to do tons of prep. I like to put enough into it that I think I'm going to have a good time myself and then let the players take that. And then I kind of just bounce off, riff off of what they're doing. Probably some of my favorite experiences in playing games uh, early on was when I discovered that if I just let them make up NPCs, you know, uh, and I asked ask them direct questions like, do you have someone in town who's your main contact? And they just sort of think, huh, you mean you're letting me make this up? I'm like, yeah, just who? who is it? Is it, is it Bob the Fishmonger? What is it? You know, and they come up with a person. Sometimes a really goofy name that no one really thinks is serious, but... You know, some of the best characters have come out of that situation. Um, So I think that what I'm getting at really is easing off on the sort of the authoritarian kind of oversight thing and being more open to giving the players some control over the world in a way that makes them feel like they're part of it or sort of help creating it. That's a big change. Also, just sort of understanding that you can't just take any rule system and make any game with it. You can't always get the same success with D&D plus whatever movie you like in editing together. Um, I don't think that D&D is perfect for all games. Um, it's good for lots of them. Mm-hmm. But it has become sort of its own genre, right? D&D is its own thing. You can't really expect always to squeeze that into any kind of box, <laughs> um, which is really good for me as a designer because then I get to tell people we should play my game because then you can use that
0: yeah and that segues very well into my next questions which are about your kind of latest project the one that you are working on or or have just finished I guess in the last year uh, which is the Cortex Prime RPG and the the whole rule set for that game so Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about Cortex Prime and how it works for those unfamiliar with it
1: Cortex Prime, I've described it in the past as being kind of like a building building kit, uh, a toolkit for for creating games with. It's not really uh, a single game all by itself. It's like the Lego bricks, which you make the, the Lego kits out of. And so you can tear those apart and pull them back together again several times. You can decide that you don't like how the way some rules modifications work. You can switch them out unlike a lot of generic games like you know GURPS or other sort of things like that, it isn't even necessarily the same game traits involved. You can switch out the entire stats. You can take these things out. Combat can work differently. Magic can work differently. But what's common to all of it is a a dice pool system where you put dice together into a pool from different parts of your character sheet. You roll the dice, and you normally take the two best rolling dice and add them together. And that's... Mm -hmm that's kind of the, the general dice mechanic. Um, and there's obviously many ways you can tweak that, but pretty much always it's opposed roles. Um, Although there's even a mod where you can have the difficulty set to a number, like in many other games, like a target number. I like to have opposed rolls because I like to have um, the GM, whenever you roll dice, uh, player or GM and one of the dice comes up as a one, we call that a hitch. Now it used to be called a, Bunch of other things, but um, in Cortex Prime, it's called a hitch. The the GM can buy those off you, they don't count towards your dice, so you, you can't use them for anything, they're just like you know, extras. But the GM can buy them, give you plot points, which you can then spend on things later on to do cool stuff. But at the same time, they create what's called a complication or they create some stress on you. So bad things happen to you because you rolled a one, but you get some kind of game currency to spend later to make things a little bit better. So it's kind of you don't mind getting it, you know, it's temporary. Uh, but that's that's one of those common things. And because the GM rolls dice too, when they roll ones, the players can buy those off them and get benefits. So it does work both ways.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I like the balance of that system. So you kind of mentioned a few other of those generic games like GURPS and, and you know, there, there are tons of others. So what do you feel like Cortex does better than these other generic systems uh, you you mentioned that it's very flexible and it's got a lot of parts you can bolt on but yeah tell us why you feel like it's it's the game you should use for for you know any kind of world that you want to build
1: yeah I, I think, I don't always want to say that my game is better than anyone else's game, obviously, because that's uh, a little bit conceited. I, I play a lot of games that, that aren't my ones that I've created. <laughs> right. Um, in fact, my favorite RPG of all time is not even remotely like Cortex. It's the King Arthur Pendragon game from Chaosium. It's my favorite. But that's, mm. that aside, I think the reason why Cortex Prime does stand out is that it is way more modular. It, it can be tuned to fit play styles, but it also kind of defaults to a sort of uh, cinematic uh, movie slash um, literature kind of like approach where players have a whole lot of agency. They have a whole lot of control of not just their characters, but also the flow of the story. And the GM kind of can be there to sort of help guide things around and make it uh, fun. It's also great for adapting to license things. That's why it's been the way it has been for all the time. Each time we got a new game license for Margaret Weiss Productions, we would. I would rebuild Cortex to make it work. So Cortex Prime which is the one that we're talking about here is like the combination of all of those different versions sort of slammed together into one big box of lego and you can build whatever you like out of it, tweak them and so on. So that's kind of the infinite customization while also remaining somewhat consistent in terms of its mechanic is why I think it's uh, pretty good.
0: So Cortex Prime then is kind of like the sum of all of these parts of games that you have built in the past to make this this one um, f- the most flexible and useful of all of them.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like this big Frankenstein's monster of of uh, <laughs> of versions of itself. Um, and even then, you know, you, there's three settings in the book which I sort of provided as examples, and they're very specific. You know, they're not mm-hmm. like generic. This is generic fantasy and generic sci-fi. No, there are three very specific kinds of things, which I call spotlights. So if you can shine a spotlight on a specific kind of narrow genre with a setting and a world and characters in it, that's kind of what I like to do with Cortex. So less the, this is generic superheroes, and more this is this specific kind of superheroes in this place and in this
0: time. So Into the Motherlands is a, a newer RPG live play um, stream and podcast. And they are currently using the Cortex Prime system. So tell us what it's like to watch something like this um, that started out very recently, you know, really grow into something huge that has had a wildly um, successful Kickstarter in the last few days. Uh, You know, is it, what's it like to watch the game that you built uh, be used in such a successful property?
1: Oh, it's very exciting. I mean, honestly, to be, to be fair, that, that, uh, that stream is is what it is because of Tanya and and B Dave and and everybody else who works on it. Eugenio mm-hmm. is at a really really amazing GM. Uh, it's not a thing where I sort of think, oh good, you know, my my game is being used. Uh, look at how awesome that is. It's I'm so happy that they're using it because it's nice to have that recognition. But the mm-hmm. success of it is absolutely down to them. It's not because the game is is good or bad. I don't think.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. They've done an incredible job. Have you um, been surprised by any of their choices in the way they've used the mechanics or the different um, the different parts of the system?
1: No, but I, I really don't like it that it serves as a scaffold in some ways for what they want to create. I mean, all the things that they do with it, all the different world building elements, uh, the different kinds of uh, alien species and things that they incorporate, the people they've got, It's neat that it hangs off the stuff that they put together. And it's not even very much a complicated build of Cortex. It's not like it's it's reaching too far into the weeds for rules. It's fairly light, you know. But in that respect, also, you can show a whole lot of diversity in the kinds of things that people can do in the game. They've got all these different roles on their ship, and the ship itself has its own mechanics. So um, it's pretty cool. I mean, I, I really do like the fact that they've done that with it.
0: Yeah. So anyone listening, if you haven't checked it out yet, please do. In fact, their first episode is um, them actually explaining kind of the mechanics that they're going to use. What advice do you have for fledgling game designers out there and how can they improve their skills uh, with what they're doing currently?
1: Yeah, so um, start getting started on on design, being an independent designer, small press, or just even a hobby designer the first piece of advice I would have is it's really about whether your game um, is, is playable. Uh, are you having fun playing it? Can you try it out? So there's there's always this sort of avenue of like, okay, I'm going to design a role-playing game. It's going to have all the things I want in it and so on. You, get, you write it and you do this thing and then you sort of are done with it and you think, well, now what can I do? And my question to you is, have you tried this out? Have you played it with your friends? Have you, have you let anyone else try it? I think that's the real big mistake some people make is they make it sort of like an academic process when it should be a very organic, iterative process. Um, start with something small, or at least you know, have some crunch, have some you know the basics, and work through it with your game group or with people online or workshop it somehow. And don't be afraid to dump whole chunks of it if you don't think it's working. Uh, I can't say it enough that you know you really shouldn't design entirely in a vacuum got to have some of the people having feedback on there somehow, whether it's you've hired an editor to help you work on it, or you've got your, your buddies helping to play it, it's, it's not enough just to write and design something, you have to have it sort of see it in its own, you know, <laughs> doing what it's for, which is being used as a game
0: follow up on that. how best can these indie designers help themselves and their games stand out from the rest and what is the best way for them to break into designing professionally for you know a, a publisher or something like that?
1: So um, every once in a while people will do these game jams on various community forums. if you go to Ian World or IPG or other places I, there's just a couple that I tend to frequent. There are these game jams, and and it's like, well, okay, um, today's magic three words are desert and dragon and wolf, you know, and let's let's make again involves all three of those, and so people do sort of a short, very small, experimental games and try them out, and they have to always involve those things, like it's like a Iron Chef competition, right? (laughs) Yeah. I think that it's always cool to go looking for things like that. Communities where you think you have um, some sort of a sense of alignment with the, the sort of the ideals and the values and the uh, the play styles that people practice there. If you don't want to go to an um, old school Renaissance type place if you just can't stand old school D anD D. There's no point. Now, similarly, if you if you can't you know really get your handle on very narrative, very loosey goosey games, then your crunchy game system isn't going to be very performative there either. So find a community where you think you, you think it's going to be good. Um, start out with some feelers. Just start posting things. If you don't have any of that stuff, um, there are Discord, obviously, which you're quite familiar with, where people can do it. I think to make your game stand out, though, it's got to have something of yourself in it. And you have to sort of really narrow down, what is my game about, and why am I doing this? Um, you're not likely to stand out if your game is my world is generic middle ages and you get to play some wizards and maybe sometimes you get to be some thieves it's yeah you have to have something which you bring to it that you think is yours uh, and that you you know that you like that'll be my last piece of advice especially when it comes to how to get started is don't try doing things you have no interest in <laughs> if you do not like sci-fi don't make a sci-fi game it's it's you, everyone's gonna know
0: <laughs> yeah last piece of that then what advice would you give yourself well 21 years ago now uh that would you think would really change your outlook and, and make it that much easier for you then
1: learn how things like taxes and and uh, <laughs> general business sense and banking and and other kinds of stuff Mm. Time management organization a lot of that stuff. Some people are just naturals at if you know how to put together a spreadsheet and you understand all of that, been cool, you know, don't don't listen to me but um, I would I would tell my my younger self to get a handle on that because otherwise things can get out of control you lose track of time You don't really know what you're spending. You don't know what to do with the money you do get You know all that stuff is actually quite important. Um, it sounds boring and it really is at times this whole administration of your game design career or, or what it is to start with. It does need to have a little bit of um, practical understanding of that sort of stuff to really just nail it. Um, mm-hmm. If you go into, a, into an operation like, hey, I'm going to write some words for you, uh, I think two cents a word is a great rate. Uh, mm-hmm. No, it's not. That's terrible. Um, don't work for that. But also, Try not working for anyone. Try putting something else out first, and just price it for how much you think it's worth, and seeing if anyone buys it. But these are all practical things. This is the sort of the the business side of it. Yeah, uh, it is. Um, it's quite important if you want to do this as a as a profession.
0: Hmm. I think that's great advice. I know that a lot of businesses, you know, are are launched and then sink very quickly because they lack that. So mm-hmm. it's it's important to get a handle on for sure. What is your absolute favorite game that you ever worked on or designed?
1: Oh, good, good. that's a good question. I would still say I will go back to Marvel heroic role-playing. Uh, getting to play in the Marvel sandbox is just, it's just exhilarating. It's fantastic having that kind of freedom to play with other people's toys. This is true of all licenses for me, but with Marvel, I'm a huge Marvel fan. And this was at the very beginning before the MCU was even much of anything. You know, we had just come out of seeing what, Thor when we were sort of getting this. And so this is before the Avengers movie. And and now uh, I would be super over the moon to work on that as a, as a property with more Marvel stuff coming all the time. Yeah. But back then it was uh, Brian Michael Bendis' Avengers and comics, it was um, uh, Joss Whedon's Aven- uh, X Men. Uh, We had a whole bunch of stuff in the early 2000s that I was a huge fan of, and I got to take all those characters and make a role-playing game out of it, and that was just great. Um, I'd love to go back and do that again if I had to. Yeah,
0: that's an example of doing something that you really love, right? Instead of Mm -hmm. working on something you hate. What are your parting words of advice for aspiring um, GMs, aspiring game designers, aspiring tabletop role-playing creators?
1: So, um, okay, for GMs, I would say for when you're doing any kind of prep or beginning to sort of understand how your game's going to go, the player's character sheets are their wish list to you. That's what they want. Um, if everyone's playing a thief or if everyone's got some sort of magical thing or everyone's got some dark secret, your game's going to be about being a thief or having a dark secret or being magical. That's, that's just how it is. If you don't want to fight it, um, you can always suggest... Let's make characters that are going to be useful for this dark, gritty, neo-noir Batman-type setting. And then, if they do that, then cool. But if they don't, you may have to do a bit of uh, changing around of what your plans are. Unless you really want to fight them a lot on that, then you should probably not, <laughs> not do that too much. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's kind of my, my, uh, my advice. As far as game designers go... With the whole thing with character sheets still matters too. Not only is it, um, if you're running the game, it's the wish list from the players. If you're designing a game, it's what you want the game to be about. So start with the character sheet before you do any other design rules or anything else. Um, write up what you want your characters to look like, what kind of stats they've got, what, what sort of belongs on the sheet, what players will always be looking at when they're sitting there playing it. And then take that and some notes and start working from there. Because... That's the most uh frequently looked at and and referenced and studied and and you know used piece of your game is the character sheet, yeah, and so you better start with that because if, if it's your afterthought, if you design that sheet at the end of the game, then this <laughs> yeah you' you've taken it from the
0: wrong end. It's almost backwards from what I would think of. I haven't ever tried to design my own game, but that is a great point that it is the most referenced piece, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's, yeah, that's where the whole game happens. So that's great advice. What projects are you currently working on that you're really excited about?
1: Right now, I am designing and writing uh, the Tales of Zadia role-playing game, which is based on Netflix's Dragon Prince from the lovely people at Wonderstorm. I've been working on that for a while, and that is for Fandom, who I work for now as the, the creative director of all things Cortex. So Tales of Zadia should be out this year. It's a really fun game. It's it's the first uh, of the new Cortex Prime licensed games from fandom, so we're all very excited by it. It's, it's going to be great. Um, and it has dragons and elves and other kinds of cool things, but also a very heavy focus on so, so sense of humor, but also family and relationships and tragedy and all that sort of thing. Um, all the elements that I think a good fantasy game should have. And it's a very successful TV show, so it's also a bonus.
0: Nice. Where can listeners find your work online, uh, you know, personal websites, business websites, social accounts, etc.
1: I'm always on Twitter, at BoyMonster. And I just started doing Instagram uh, for real. I used to have a, I used it for posting photos of my, kids dinner which is not that exciting but <laughs> i started doing a lot of that stuff of socials on there it's uh, rusty Sword is my ig handle but you can see everything at uh if you go to cortex rpg.com uh, you can find cortex stuff tales of Zadia.com is where tales of zadia itself is and i just frequent a lot of places you'll see me as uh, as either boy monster Cambanks or rusty Sword in one of those places uh, online so yeah but Twitter's a good place to start. That's a good place to to see me more often than not.
0: Excellent. I'll be sure to uh, post all those links in the episode description. Thanks so much, Cam, for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I'd love to pick your brain more, but I'll, like I said, give you some more time to uh, get back to being productive.
1: Yeah, I will give that a, a shot. Thank you very much for inviting me on.
0: Thanks for joining us on How Not to DM. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and share the podcast with your friends and family around your table. For episode guest announcements link to our Discord community, blog, and social media accounts, visit at HN2DM on Twitter. Our awesome intro and outro music is by my good friend Torin. And until next time, roll some Nat20s for me.